0: On this episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and information in the ASC industry, talk about recent experiences in various centers, and in our focus segment, host a roundtable discussion during the New Jersey State Association meeting with various speakers at the conference.
1: Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to Ambulatory healthcare strategies have an edge. HS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement program, run their meetings, develop educational programs, and always be prepared for surveys. For more information or to schedule a consultation, visit our website at ah ah-strategies.com, email us at info at ah ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167.
0: Welcome to episode 133 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June 13th, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And he's having way too much fun with his new soundboard over there. little applause in the little background. little
1: applause and then a little bit of laughter there. And, uh, what else can I do here? Uh, oh, if, it, if we say anything scary, Sue. And, of course, when, when neither of us have anything to say, Crickets. <laughs> <Yes>. Crickets. <laughs> uh, when <whoops. laughs> when the puppy's in the uh, the studio, uh, when she hears the crickets, it, it really perks her up. But yes, we uh, we found we had to replace uh, the soundboard, and now we have a new uh, sound effects board in here, all all to help. Uh, enhance the quality. We we're finding, we we're having a little bit of hum, perhaps in the uh, yeah. last couple episodes, people might have noticed it and kind of determined that the, uh, the board was getting a little on the old side. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, being who I am, being as conservative as I am, I went out and bought an exact duplicate <laughs> of the board. So Sue can't even tell the difference because it looks exactly the same, except it isn't dusty anymore. a lot anymore. Yes. <laughs> <I'm> cleaner looking. <laughs> so uh, we just finished the New York State Association Conference. We're, we're going to do a special episode for that and then mm-hmm. some uh, national content for that. And then before that, uh, we did the uh, special Spring New Jersey State Association virtual conference. And we've already published that episode. But we had the opportunity to uh, interview a couple of the speakers during that conference. And uh, that will be the focus of our uh, middle segment here. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have a lot of material still that we have to get through. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, We're going to have to spend the next couple Sundays, I think, getting up on (laughs) this uh, because uh, we're, we're falling behind yet again.
0: Yeah. But that's a good problem, having lots and lots of material to use. Yeah. So you did a keynote entitled "Reflections on Thirty Years in the Trenches" for the New Jersey Association.
1: Yeah, it went over pretty well. I think um, it was a lot of fun. They asked me to, you know, this uh, actually last year was my thirty years, uh, but uh, of course there wasn't much of an opportunity to to talk about it last year. So I did this uh, this uh, hour presentation as the keynote on. Uh, my 30 years and what types of things I've learned and how the industry had changed. So, but I thought I would just kind of mention some of the lessons that I uh, that I learned here because uh, I think it has uh, pertinence to our listeners in many ways. First of all, I, one of the things that I've noted is that over the 30 years, I've noticed how the industry has uh, how how our leaders in our industry now are mm-hmm. developing a profession. You know, in the beginning, really anybody <laughs> could be in in many cases. Anybody did become an administrator of a surgery center, and now, you know, that that has become a true profession. To be able to, to uh, understand and to be able to handle the unique uh, characteristics of the ambulatory surgery industry, you really have to uh, have quite a bit of training in this industry. Not to say that we're there yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're still working on trying to train people for this because uh, there is no college education in uh, ambulatory surgery center uh, administration but uh, definitely uh, we are taking on the attributes of a profession. And and I think the uh, the other thing that I've, I've seen is how important, again, staff development is and especially how important it is right now as we enter a period in which we have a lot of turnover uh, in our staff and we're, we're having significant problems in trying to uh, recruit new staff. You know, and Sue, one of the things that I've always said is you are really never prepared to lead. Many if not most of us that get into the profession, that get into leadership in an ambulatory surgery center, get there suddenly. It's mm-hmm. because somebody left. Uh, we've seen that ourselves in the last year. And how many? I think we've had two resignations within the last two weeks mm. among administrators constant. in our centers. And yeah. it is a constant uh, change. And and in each case, we have to quickly find somebody that's going to step up to take that role, even if it's temporarily. I mean, even mm-hmm. if you're in that role for you know only a month or so, that's still uh, you know. Quite an important role that you're taking on and of course you know, perhaps uh, uh, developing some skills that you might be able to use later on if you really step into that role permanently. Um, and The importance of leadership training, I think uh, I, I've always said also that um, you, you really can't be trained to be a leader, you're going to be trained to be a manager, but leadership takes some innate skills uh, and, and innate uh, capabilities that not everybody has. Second thing that uh, we, we focused on during that session was uh, where are we headed, you know, and I, I kind of uh, try to put my crystal ball in front of me and talk uh, talk through what I thought was going on and definitely feel like we're moving in the direction of more complex procedures that, that we're finding that surgery centers can do, uh, total hips, you know, total joints, without really any serious consequences there, so negative consequences. And, you know, I think we're also going to see the continuing evolution of healthcare systems and alliances. It's hard to predict yet whether they will uh, subsume our ambulatory surgery centers. We hope – I, I personally hope they don't, but it'll be interesting to see how they develop over the next couple of years. and and of course, a lot of that is going to depend upon the political environment also. Question of course, then ri- rises, you know, what is the future of physician ownership? I, I feel strongly that physician ownership is an important part of the development of ambulatory surgery centers and the quality that we we have in our centers that giving the physicians the ability to determine, you know, the quality of care and where, Those organizations head is extremely important. Uh, Somebody asked during the session, you know, what I thought about single payer or Medicare for all. Um, It is something that as we sit here today in June of 2021, it's certainly something that has been on the table by the administration and Congress, but I really don't think it's going to gain any weight, at least uh, for the next couple of years. You know, it all depends again on what happens. Uh, With the future, but I, you know, and and lastly, I kind of ended it by talking about how uh, now we are the mainstream. Huh. Isn't that interesting that, you know, in the beginning we were always that, uh, that side business over there, but now we are mainstream. The AS Surgery Centers are a major part of the healthcare system, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, people, for the most part, know about them and know and trust them to provide high-quality care. Uh, and I've also been very impressed with where we're heading with regard to professional recognition, the development of the CAS credential, which I was involved in uh, with the ASC Association many years ago, and, of course, the newer uh, CAPE. The Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist. Both of those credentials, I think, are extremely important as we try to develop leaders into the future and to provide a mechanism for uh, for recognizing their um, their skills and their leadership. So that was a that was a lot of fun, and I, I guess I've been asked by Ohio now to do. Uh, A similar keynote for them. So uh, we'll see if I have anything different to say, Sue, uh, during that time. So we are um, actually a little bit behind in the news. So whether Mm -hmm. we can fit all of this in today, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) why don't you start with some of them? I've got some news a little bit later on, too. But why don't you start with, uh, I I guess we can't escape the pandemic yet. As much as people don't want to hear too much about it. And I think there's some very important lessons that we can still learn from it that's important as we uh, as we move forward and as mm-hmm. we anticipate the next, unfortunately, as we anticipate the
0: next pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, this isn't real hard news. It's just kind of a, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some things that we've learned and some upcoming things with the pandemic. So it does look like the vaccine protection seems to be long lasting. And, and so some are predicting that there won't be a need for boosters, which would be really Good news, I think. Although, yeah. you know, if it turned into a flu type thing where we have to get them every year, it's it's We've, not that bad.
1: We're used to it. You know, I mm-hmm, mean, I don't think mm-hmm. it's a bad thing. But, if, uh, but of course, uh, boosters are going to reduce the compliance rate, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, if we don't have to rely upon them, that'll definitely That'd help. That'd
0: be great. Um, I saw some other news that previous COVID infection seems to offer protection without vaccination. Now, that's not a recommendation. That's not a guideline. It's just they they are kind of looking into that. So that that might be also a useful thing to getting us where we need to be.
1: And so we've already seen a couple examples of that where primary care physicians Mm -hmm. have uh, have uh, recommended to their patients and put it in writing, thankfully, yeah. uh, that they do not recommend a patient that had gotten. Now, again, this At is least, not across the board. Mm-hmm. But, and that's uh,
0: often the second shot because they say like getting the first vaccination of a two um, vaccination series, they feel like getting that second one could really just wreak more havoc. I mean, I know people yeah. that, that have had a really severe case of COVID. It, it, they get so sick with that, you know, with the second um, shot in the series that it may do more harm than good just as I said and I don't think there's good guidelines that you know will allow people to get like in New York the Excelsior Pass or something so I think that The regulations are going to have to catch up with the science
1: on this. Well, uh, well, and I think I've always said this to our friends Mm -hmm. uh, about this, that the best thing to do is listen to your doctor. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that have the science. You know, don't listen to Mm – I mean, it's important to keep up with the news, obviously, Mm -hmm. but since the news often has differing opinions Mm -hmm. and you don't know where they're coming from, your own doctor knows you, knows your circumstances, and is hopefully keeping on top of the the latest technology. Yeah, because it's always changing.
0: So, you know – Keep up with it and, and be willing to to be flexible as things change. Right. So on, from NPR, All Things Considered, on June 6th, they, they were talking about a new type of vaccine that's likely to come this summer. It's a protein subunit vaccine that uses an actual spike protein, whereas the current vaccines are using um, kind of the genetic instructions that... Prompts our body to to make that protein. So this is an established process. Um, Hep B vaccines and pertussis vaccines can be made that way. Um, there's several different companies that are working on that, and some are growing cells in their labs. And I just found this interesting. At least there's one company out there that's growing plants. It's some type of a variant on a tobacco plant that will grow that spike protein that they can use in the vaccine in some way so i just thought that was kind of cool Um, i didn't
1: understand a word you said but i I did catch up (laughs) on that like uh tobacco plants might actually have a good use in the future type of one one. it's
0: it's related um but you know there's so many really effective vaccines out there that i I think it's just a matter of people being willing to vaccinate but even if we don't need different types of vaccines right now to expand our, um, you know, what we've got. I think it's it's really good. All that research, you know, just think how yeah. handy that's going to come in in the future. if, If, you know, something else comes down the line, people have just, geared up and, and really learned a lot about preparing vaccines in so many different ways that I think you know it's just all that's good news we have
1: to recognize what a miracle it was to be able to pull off this vaccine in such a short period of time what the what effort went into this and the new technology as you've explained to mm-hmm. me the new technology that was involved in developing this this isn't this isn't something um, that I mean, this is something completely new, really, in many ways, uh, yeah. the types of uh, vaccines that we we now have, mm-hmm. and which hopefully will uh, will help us in the future in, in the in the event that we have. Uh, it's almost the certainty yeah. that we'll anything have. anything
0: that we learn is certainly so. going to come in, in handy in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, being good news, I think everybody needs that so much. I still see so much. People are so on edge still. Yeah. And there's so much stress and depression. And, I, you know, I just, I'm so happy that, this is hopefully starting to, you know, go away. I'm always afraid to say something like, yeah, "Yeah, but it seems like people, I I took my grandson to the YMCA for um, swim lessons this morning and nobody had to wear masks. Yeah. So that was was kind of a night. I was wearing mine for half the time until I looked around and went, (laughs) oh, I I guess we don't have to wear them anymore. (laughs)
1: Well, that's the way it's it's been in the churches too, is the churches opened up about two to three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And what a different attitude. And somebody just, uh, somebody stood up today in church and said, you know as a joy, just the joy of this, and, mm-hmm. and let's hope that we can start finding things to do. Like next week, they're going to start doing, um, you know, coffee hour again, which we mm-hmm. haven't done in over a year, yeah. uh, so that people can get sit down and talk to each other. We don't have to be fearful of being close to each other. Uh, all of that, I think, is going to help us get over this pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. And at the end of the um, New York State conference, there was a general discussion about how the pandemic may change the whole ASC process and patient <laughs> flow. And, you know, I don't think we'll delve into it too much. We may in a future. Yeah. Um, episode, but it was just interesting. A, a lot of people are kind of enjoying the fact that there's not escorts. I know. Um, you <laughs> no, know we don't have to babysit how, how patients, then,
1: family members. Yeah. I know,
0: I know. And, and how do you then pass on the discharge instructions and all yeah. that? So people are getting really creative ideas, so we may talk more about that. Um, and I saw in Healthcare Cost Institute had some really good data on the effect of the pandemic on preventative health because I know a, a lot of what many of the ASCs do is, you know, involved in preventative health. And we're actually going to put a, a link to this article because they had a really nice graph where you could select different yeah. preventative health measures or, or just different things and you could see how they how they compared from 2019 to 2020. So childhood immunizations were down as a whole, about 60% in mid-April in 2020 compared to 2019. And the interesting thing is that it it was different for different ones, like 75% down for uh, meningococcal, vaccine and HPV vaccines, but 33% down for rotavirus and the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. So I'm not quite sure why that would be because usually people yeah. just go to their doctor. What they get tell them, them to, to get, they get, but yeah. whatever that was. But um, mammograms and pap smears were down nearly 80%. But they said, you know, they've recovered and kind of rebounded. So thankfully, everybody's gotten right back on there. But, you know, when you think of for the unfortunate few people, they you know that that year might have made a difference. Yeah. Um, colonoscopies very important for our centers um, down almost ninety percent at one point in mid April of twenty twenty. Um, and they're still down about 15% compared to last year. So, that's you know, really people got to get out there and, and get their colonoscopies. Yeah,
1: and that's really worrying me. And, of course, we are seeing among our centers that they mm-hmm. really have not gotten back to the levels. They're getting close, but they're not yeah. getting back to the levels. But, but the fact that they're only getting, that they're still below the levels worries me because you yeah. still have to get caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another one of the statistics that you showed me showed uh, um, the delay. In other words, people are way behind mm-hmm. in having the regular screening colonoscopies also.
0: Yeah, if they're down that much, I mean, and it's just such an easy, important screening. And, yeah. you know, if you miss it, even even putting it off by a year, you know, you could find that, that that could really severely impact, you know, your prognosis. So,
1: yeah. So, we also have received information that the Medicare Administrative Contractors, better known as MACS, have uh, resumed their post-payment reviews of items and services with dates of service before March uh, 2020. Uh, These MACs may now begin conducting post-payment Medicare medical reviews for later dates of service. The targeted probe and educate program, uh, which is an intensive education to assess provider compliance through up to three rounds of reviews, will restart later. The Max will continue to offer detailed review decisions and education as appropriate. So, uh, be prepared for the Max to be out there now to start doing medical reviews, which really kind of stopped during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then in the ASCA focused journal June edition, there was an article by Alex Terra T A I R A about an ASCA survey done in April, asking about uh, electronic. Uh, medical record use by ASCs, and he wanted to note that there were only 260 respondents, so that likely limits the accuracy, but it's still very useful information, and they found that 55% of respondents are currently using electronic medical record, while 86% of office-based physicians and 96% of non-federal acute care hospitals are using them. So this actually, uh, I, I've been wondering about this, too, because mm-hmm. when we look at our own clients, actually the adoption rate of EHRs is actually less than that 55%, so it wasn't mm-hmm. surprising to me that the adoption rate was that low
0: yeah yeah and as we said only 260 respondents and and so possibly people have been, would yeah. have been more likely to respond if they were using them so they attributed that to the 2000 and, the higher rates in hospitals to the 2009 high tech act that included stimulus payments for those sites but they didn't include the ascs
1: yeah so so meaning it would have been more likely that we would have had adoption had there been some been funds some available kind of, to yeah, that yeah, yeah.
0: And with the people that were using the EHRs, um, the most cited benefits were increased operational efficiency and um, easy access to data for benchmarking. And, of course, the ones that didn't adopt the um, electronic medical records, the biggest reason um, was the cost of that. And I would think also a lot of, at least our centers often just say, it's just that whole process of switchover that can be difficult.
1: Well, and... As we've been helping them through this process, we've made it very clear that um, this is not going to be easy. That, and, and in deference to our wonderful sponsor, SIS, one mm-hmm. thing that I've always said is you got to be very careful about what the uh, you know, the salespeople say about mm-hmm. how uh, efficient you're going to become. I do agree, as they have found, that you can become efficient. It's just not going to happen right away. Yeah. And they have to be prepared to go through a couple months of very difficult times mm-hmm. as they implement that system. And really working with a major vendor, working with a good vendor mm-hmm. out there. And having a very well laid out plan is crucial if you're going to succeed in, in that conversion to an, an electronic medical record. But I, I do think, Sue, uh, we are seeing a huge increase in the mm-hmm. number of our clients that are moving in that direction. So, uh, so when people yeah. ask me when is it going to be time to do it, I think mm-hmm. probably within the next 12 to 18 months. Now, in a recent conversation with uh, a friend of mine in the uh, uh, computer industry, they were mm-hmm. saying that many of these organizations, almost all of these organizations, are are way behind in implementation. In mm-hmm. other words, there is a heavy demand yeah. for uh, converting, and that has put a backlog into each of these mm-hmm. industries or each of these organizations. So uh, if you're going to make that decision to move in that direction, mm-hmm. uh, you probably want to, uh, don't don't expect it to happen right away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So ASCA members can access uh, PowerPoint with a full breakdown of the survey responses, and they do this often, These these short little surveys to kind yeah. of Find out what's going on with everybody. Um, so, just you know, another benefit of membership.
1: Absolutely, in the ASC Association at yep. ascassociation.org. Um Sue, so during let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, some recent things in uh, in surveys. So, during a recent survey, the issue came up uh, that the client had been using the term monitored anesthesia care, mm-hmm. MAC in their uh, consents and in their delineation of privileges. And the American Society of Anesthesiologists really are suggesting uh, that their members move away from the use of that term in uh, these types of forms. Monitoring anesthesia care really refers to, you know, how you, well, how you monitor uh, uh, patients that are under anesthesia, not the level of anesthesia. So uh, in your delineation of privileges, in your consents, and indeed in the very forms and policies that you have in your organizations, you should be moving in the direction of differentiating between minimal moderate and deep sedation. So those should be on your consents. They should be on your uh, delineation of privileges. And so a big issue that we've been running into lately too is that if your consent does not indicate what level of anesthesia is anticipated, then Mm -hmm. you are probably not providing appropriate uh, informed consent to your Mm -hmm. patients. So uh, do make those changes now. And then in the most recent uh, survey, uh, we found that our uh, that one of our centers had not been uh, uh, putting together safety data sheets for the drugs that mm-hmm. they were using. It was a very simple fix, fortunately, mm-hmm. but uh, but just a little warning there to uh, to make sure that you're including your medications when you're gathering all of your SDS uh, binders
0: mm-hmm. and make sure they are the SDS, not the older <laughs> MSDS, if they were something that you had put together a while ago and, That's and right. haven't
1: updated. And Sue, our pharmacy consultant, provided us with some websites of some uh, websites that you can use in order to uh, pull down the safety data sheets. Mm -hmm. So we'll put those into the show notes here also.
0: Okay. And often it's just the manufacturer of of that medication.
1: Right. So, Sue, that gets us to uh, part two. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation uh, at noon on the day of the New Jersey State Association meeting where we pulled together a panel of. Of speakers to talk about various issues. My main question to each of them was, uh, what was the big, biggest takeaway from their uh, their speech? And then at the end of, uh, after I asked them those questions, I just uh, asked a couple of panel uh, questions. It ended up being a, a wonderful discussion that uh, I think was, it's not something that's only important to New Jersey. So mm-hmm. uh, we mm-hmm. thought we would include that in part two. So let's take a short break and come back and we'll listen to our speaker panel from the New Jersey State Association meeting in May. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in Service to Meet the Challenges of COVID-19 and the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So uh, Matthew Collins, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome you to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. You uh, did a session here at the New Jersey State Association meeting. So Matthew, you did a session on what every every employer needs to know about the legal risk of uh, uh, at-risk employment. We all know right now that uh, we are we're facing some pretty serious uh, hiring uh, challenges in the industry. It's actually it's universal. It's not just healthcare. It's not just surgery centers, but really uh, all small businesses now are really struggling uh, to uh, to hire employees to find employees. Uh, and and I'm, I'm afraid that uh, some of the challenges that we have now are we, we bring people on board uh, that might not, uh, you know, they're a warm body and they might not have been fully vetted. So there are going to be situations where we're going to fi- have uh, to discover ways to uh, terminate employment. Uh, your session was on, on how to, to uh, reduce those risks. Um, so uh, wh- what was the biggest takeaway that you want our listeners to, uh, to have from, from that session?
2: I think the biggest takeaway is that there's a lot of misconceptions about at-will employment. I have many clients that will come to me after either being sued by an employee for wrongful termination or receiving a demand letter from an attorney, and their response frequently is, well, this was an at-will employee. How can I be sued? And the the reality is, is that at-will employment is really not going to be a defense to almost all of the type of wrongful termination claims that we see. Uh, That's because there is a vast amount of state and federal uh, laws that grant various rights to employees and at the same time put many burdens and obligations on the employer. And if the employer is not familiar with those obligations, they could unwittingly uh, terminate somebody who is uh, then going to set them up for a potential claim of, again, wrongful termination, discrimination, retaliation. Uh, anything like that. So the the key really takeaway for employers is to recognize they never really should be looking to defend uh, an employment action based upon somebody being at will. Really, they need to look at the the laws that might be triggered. They need to be familiar with those laws and hopefully take some steps that are proactive to try and reduce the risk of those type of uh, unlawful termination claims.
1: So, Matthew, it goes without saying that documentation is extremely important. Did you have any advice uh, on on how to uh, the best document um, your uh, your your thought processes?
2: Yeah, so documentation, I agree, one hundred percent, is very critical. The lack of documentation is going to be seized upon by the employee's attorney. Um, I find that a very easy way to document things these days are through emails. It's a very quick way to either confirm a conversation that you had with somebody, said, hey, we talked about XYZ issues, you're deficient in this area, we need you to improve, or otherwise there's gonna have to be some action taken against you. You know, Having formal performance reviews are very good, but you don't really wanna wait to document once a year. It really should be an ongoing process that is happening throughout the course of the year, and preferably is happening contemporaneously. So if an incident happens, Meet with a person and document it uh, fairly quickly. Uh, the documentation, um, the ideal documentation is to document it directly to the employee. Uh, if you are not comfortable with that, at least some type of memo to the file also could suffice.
1: So, uh, John uh, Karwalski, uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, Thank you.
3: Thank you the invitation.
1: You did, a, you did a session on protecting our patients and our employees, so kind of uh, segueing, uh, hopefully uh, uh, a logical segue here, is uh, once we got them hired and hopefully we keep them around, how do we protect them and how do we make sure that we're protecting our, our, uh, our patients also that, are, uh, that have come to our center? So your session uh, was on that topic. Uh, what was the biggest takeaway that you want our
3: audience to know? And John, as you know, education is so important to the staff to understand regulations and regulatory changes as you do in your daily site visits. I'm doing that with our clinical staff. USP 797 is a concept that I presented this morning. It relates to safe injection practice that Uh, is required in every healthcare institution, whether you're making uh, compounded drugs in hospital clean rooms or preparing a syringe in a surgery center. The USP 797 standards will roll out through all of these um, uh, various uh, activities. And I think really educating staff in technique and the proper uh, handling of, of sterile injectable drugs was the message today. And knowing what the regulation is and how the regulation will be interpreted, you're very big into your podcast. I listen to your podcast and the interpretive guidelines of the standards are are critical in allowing the staff to um, know how to perform uh, activities correctly and protect our patients and our fellow employees.
1: So as a surveyor, I will tell you uh, USP 797 is my, I mean, it's one of those things I keep with me all the time. It's one of the... <laughs> I, I, we we have this uh, um I don't know if I call it a joke or a, a standard phrase. If, if we're in a surgery center and we're having problems finding something to cite, all I do is follow the anesthesi- <laughs> anesthesiologist around for a few minutes, uh, and I'm going to find something. And, and, and I'm constantly at odds with them, especially of those anesthesiologists that are – uh-oh, I'm in trouble here, Monty. Uh, <laughs> anesthesiologists that, uh, that work in hospitals that come back and tell me, uh, oh, I don't have to do this in the hospital. First of all, I don't believe them. Uh, and then uh, second, uh, I also recognize – recognize that you know that we have a lot more scrutiny we have you know you have surveyors that are coming out to the surgical unit obviously in a surgery center whereas in the hospital uh, you know Jayco might not be showing up so so uh, so just quick advice on on uh, who who should you watch how can they how can we convince them that it's important to do this and what quick tools might be available for that
3: and, and Monty and I talk quite a bit about this topic in trying to gain uh, the compliance with different uh, specialties. Anesthesia is some a practice that's been around ever since surgery started. And I think the changes that have occurred recently, especially with USP 797, have been dramatic in the way they perform their activities. Monty and I are trying to determine how can we get this accomplished by what's in it for them and not di- doing it as a uh, disciplinary, you know, p- punal way of, of reporting. And I talked about an anesthesiologist this morning that I met with last week at a center that was evident that he would not be uh, complying. He was going to be splitting vials. He was had drug shortages, and there was no one going to change him. And after about 10 minutes, we agreed that he will be rounding with me on my next visit understanding the role that I have as a consultant pharmacist in allowing his patients to have the safest procedure possible. So I think it really needs a lot of handholding and it needs a lot of one-on-ones and it can't be punitive with a specialty such as, uh, you know, a medical staff profession that, um, you know, we think is just going to change because the, it's written in a regulation.
1: Well said. Uh, so, Monty, why don't we segue over to you? You uh, did a session on preoperative screening and testing. Um, I'll tell you, I mean, of course, huge changes. Uh, who, who would have ever anticipated that we needed to, uh, to do what we're doing today in addition to making sure the patient is an appropriate candidate for surgery? But uh, it is so important now uh, in today's environment to, uh, to make sure we're on top of this. So what, what advice did you give? What do you think is a big takeaway from your session?
4: Uh, You know, I think moving into the future, we really have to get rid of the old concepts of a shotgun approach that all patients are identical and we need all these labs and, you know, all all this information from every patient so that we can determine, you know, it, it just requires so much filtering and we get so much really almost useless information regarding how patients are going to move through our system. We have to develop systems within each of our ASCs. You know that are specific to each patient and each procedure. I think classically, you know, we we think about anesthesia being the major risk and they always determine which patients can come through. It, you know, in a sense, and especially as we move to higher acuity procedures in our ASCs, we really need to stratify the procedure as one of the major determinants of risk, of what kind of screening we're going to do on these patients, and emphasize that it's going to be web-based. Patients are going to be able to have to provide information on their own terms, you know, not through phone tag. And then we can process the information based on algorithm and only get what's specific for each patient and each procedure. And that can also be narrowed down to the facility as well. Each facility has different capabilities. I've heard that as a theme today. In all the uh, in all the lectures that I heard, and so you know all that combined to get specific information to determine if patients could get through our ASCs and have their procedure done safely. I
1: I find uh, preoperative screening to be a, a big challenge in in many of uh, the centers that I visit. Um, you know, cancellations, last-minute cancellations, understanding the importance of, of good screening beforehand, especially in those centers. We find a lot in GI centers, for example, very poor upfront screening, which results in cancellations, results in uh, in, uh, in patients that have arrived with uh, already going through a, a, a very uh, arduous process. Uh, um, prep and then find out that they're being canceled because nobody had bothered to, to do a good screening. Uh, what type of tools do you think should be uh, at the top of everybody's list uh, in preparing for that?
4: Well, I think one of the major things that we have, we, we definitely, uh, we wrestle with the same difficulties in the uh, GI centers throughout the virtuous system. Uh, it, it's all about educating the, the, uh, the, the providers, the surgeons, the procedure list. They're the first line of defense. And I think it's often missed that they need to start that screening process right when they see these patients. And if anyone needs an early intervention, they need to provide that information even earlier than they should. And you know, I think a lot of times when we go into our centers, we find that patients are screened only the night before. They're getting these phone calls because they've already gotten, especially in the GY In the GI world, they already have their instructions to how to do prep, what meds to hold, and the night before they're getting a call from the ASC. And that is way too late in this process. The screening should really start to occur as soon as a patient is booked. And a lot of times that information is not being transmitted to the ASC. They're not even getting the bookings until the day before. The ASC just have slots. So the more we can push out to the practices to make them understand how essential Screening is that leads to much fewer cancellations. And if items, if the screening process is web-based and patients could do it at their own time and start as soon as they know they're having a procedure, that definitely makes the system a lot more efficient, a lot fewer cancellations, and I think it makes for a much more streamlined process.
1: So, Corey, there's been a lot of changes as a result of COVID, a lot of um I, I would say opportunities. That's one thing that we've been preaching both in our company and on the podcast uh, is that uh, COVID has, uh, if we if we uh, if we play our cards right, has opened up some opportunities that perhaps weren't there before. Uh, so, Corey, your session was on service lines made easy. Can you give us a uh, an overview of what you talked about and what a big takeaway was from that?
5: Sure. Um, I, I co spoke with Bonnie, so we actually split the presentation, and we tried to make it simple for centers to really start looking outside the box about what they're capable of. Um, You know, as you mentioned, COVID kind of brought a lot of opportunities to the surgery centers. And I think what, what it should show us as administrators and leaders in the surgery centers is that we're really capable of doing a lot of things that we may not have thought we were before. You know, we didn't think we could pivot so quickly and implement some of these changes that, that were every week or some of them even daily. Um, so so taking on a service line now sh- shouldn't be as intimidating as it once was. And we really tried to make it simple for everybody could kind of look outside the box and not be so emotionally attached to a decision. Um, you know, either definitely this was something that their center should do or definitely not and really work some, some steps and analyze whether or not this made sense for their center. Are they going to get paid for it? Do they have the space for it? Do they have a committed, uh, champion team to do it? So they have champion physician. Do they have a champion anesthesiologist, OR, and even PACU team? Um, and then, and do they have the space to do it? Um you know, some of the, all this new technology is wonderful, but it takes up a lot of space. And where do we put it? Because none of us built our surgery centers to accommodate all of these things. We ne- Most of us probably never dreamed that we'd be doing total joints or even cardiac procedures in an ASC setting. So we didn't design our our facilities for that. And most of us are running out of space just with what we have. So how can we think outside the box and how can we really make sure that we're making the right decision?
1: Yeah. Try to fit a, a one of those robots into a an existing center yeah. with a, a C-arm and all the other video equipment we have. Trust me, it takes up a lot of space.
5: Exactly.
1: Uh, so what what do you think are some of the, the biggest opportunities that have, uh, speaking as to, you know, the last year, what, I, I mean, I mentioned in uh, my session earlier that, uh, you know, total joints have uh, really taken off. And I think it's, I, I, I believe it's because people don't really want to you know go to hospital anymore patients want to uh, to be in our environment what do you think are going to be the well what do you think are the uh, areas that they should be focusing on keeping an eye out for that might have uh, better reimbursement and better opportunities
5: I think, as you mentioned, total joints, if you have the capability, especially if you're already doing orthopedics or have a physician that might be interested or um, links to a physician that might be interested in establishing a program, I think the sooner you get your program established and get your team on board to refine that program, the better because I think more and more joints are going to be coming outside of the hospital. And I think you do it now, or you can do it later, but do it now when you have the opportunity that you can really build at the pace that you want to, you don't have to, you know, you don't have that high volume. necessarily coming right out. You can start with one or two and you can build your programs and refine your program as you go through. I also looking, think looking at some of these cardiac uh, cardiac procedures, they're going to be coming more outpatient. Um, but as you mentioned too, more and more patients are going to want to come out of the hospital. You know, I think we've been ready for years and we've been trying to tell them that we had lower infection rates, but now they really believe us. I think this time, I think this time we really got them. And I think our physicians, you know, we, we tried to always make it easy for them to schedule cases, but now with the backlogs that some of the hospitals have or some of the restrictions that they have, they're really seeing that it could be a great relationship. Um, So these are really the times to think outside the box, like the joints, like GI, like I talked about in my session with multi-specialty. Some of these procedures that we may just think this just doesn't work, it could work. And I think that's where the centers just have to get a little bit creative.
1: And as you mentioned, the ability to be able to pivot on a dime, being able – that's something that – we always joke in our company that whenever a hospital hires us, we double our fee because of all the committee meetings that we have to go to. Um, and then in an ASC, it's so much easier to implement stuff. So uh, definitely, that's I think a hallmark of our of our uh, of our industry, and we need to to capitalize on that. And, and to that end, Andrew, you did a moderated a session on uh, joint ventures and and uh, how uh, best to capitalize on that. Um, Talk a little bit about how uh, what you what your panel discussed and uh, what some of the key takeaways were from that.
6: Sure. Well, um, we had a keynote speaker today that um, talked about his broad experience and long experience in the ASC industry. I'm much, much younger uh, than you. <laughs> Thanks a but, lot. Uh, <laughs> I'll get even I, with you. <laughs> I know. Um, that said, uh, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I think that, my biggest takeaway was when you go back to that time period of 20 years, probably up to about maybe even 10 years ago, um, the cooperation between uh, the healthcare systems and ASCs was, let's say frosty to be (laughs) polite. Um, Certainly not antagonistic to the point that in some states, particularly CON states where, where, you know, it was outright hostile, but the idea of ASEs and hospitals working together, you know, it, it, it was just not a concept that, that we were familiar with. So fast forward now, we had three representatives from three different healthcare systems in the state uh, that proved a point that, you know, the joint ventures that uh, hospitals have now entered in with physicians um, were probably based on economic factors, uh, higher reimbursement rates, for instance. Um, but yet, you know, here in this past year or so, you know, the, the support that was given to help guide ASCs through this pandemic, um, by providing communication, by providing, uh, resources, by providing, uh, a lifeline in some cases for helping ASC, uh, to keep their employees employed by by redeployment was very impressive, right? And, and, and I think, uh. You know prove that at the end of the day, you know we we are all working together and we are all rowing the boat in the same direction.
1: So, what do you think is the future andrew of uh, of the hospital ASC relationship? Where do you think we might be heading? I, I mean I, I i'm I'm having a hard time trying to predict that, and I'm asked that question all the time. so just interested in your perspective on that.
6: Well, I think we've we've taught the hospital uh, industry you know a few lessons. The very nature, as you mentioned uh, in, in speaking with Corey, that we can turn on a dime—you um, know—the the structure of of our governance, the structure of you know the very nature of you know how we operate is predicated on being able to react quickly. Um, we don't we don't have those layers that hospitals do. I think hospitals realize that you know in order, and I think again, Johnny spoke to this. It, in, in order to be successful, you can't just plug a hospital trained person into an ASC. Once that realization I think took place, uh, you, you know, for the healthcare systems and they seeked out people to manage their joint ventures to prove that there's value to that. I I, I think that those relationships are going to be stronger and those the and and these arrangements either if you're Part of a of a of a joint venture, or even if you're outside of a joint venture, um, I, I I think we'll be working even closer uh, it, w- with uh, with hospitals to help find the the appropriate place of service. You know, for you know whichever service line that's uh, most beneficial for the best outcome, and that means not only clinically the best outcome, but also financially the best outcome. I think it's going to continue and be, and be even stronger.
1: So Claire, it all comes down to quality in the end. Uh, I left you for last for a very specific reason. First of all, I'm passionate about it. I know you are too. Um, so uh, all of what we've talked about up until now doesn't mean anything. If we can't prove to our our patients, if we can't prove to the doctors that we bring, that we recruit, that we can provide good quality care. So your uh, the title of yours is, I, I love it, Embracing Quality Improvement. I talked about it in in my session that uh, quality improvement is not paper. I mean, I know that is a perception. It, it, it is a culture. So uh, – now, you know, you you probably had the broadest uh, topic to talk about. Can you just kind of give uh, our audience a bit of an idea of, of what you focused on in your session?
7: Well, you're absolutely right, and thanks for your words. Um, so embracing quality, you know, quality is a huge topic and is worthy of, you know, seminars on their own. So I focused on doing an overview of quality improvement and I guess more of an introduction on quality improvement um, in the novice track. And I think the biggest takeaway that I wanted people to leave with was to understand that quality improvement is not a punitive issue but more of an educational approach and that's been my personal professional um, philosophy since I've been a nurse and in my earlier nursing days um, my impressions and experiences with the quality improvement team was that they would come down to our unit and all we'd hear is about what we're doing wrong what we're doing wrong we're not doing this right I said but all right so how do we make it better and we are doing a lot of things right. And that should be recognized. And I would tell my staff, go and hide. You know, I'll deal with them. So as years went on and my experiences became more diverse and always were involved with quality, that was what I took to everybody. This is education. We're going to to look at doing it this way because it's better for the patients. It's what the evidence-based science says. It's what everybody says is right for right now. So the primary goal of quality is to evaluate, assess, identify what's being done well, what can be done better, where are there areas for improvement if the standards or the outcomes are not showing that the compliance is being met to where it, it should be. Um, so those are my basic professional values, as you know, I mentioned before, that I take in all my approaches and promote not only in my company, but with my client ASCs, because it is one that I truly believe in. I believe in that. QI should be collaborative. It should be a team approach, not something feared, but something embraced, because the ultimate goal is to improve um, patient quality of care and improve safety to the patients we take care of. That said, quality um, is time consuming and um, can be very frustrating to a lot of people and not. Everybody has the same resources within their facility to be able to develop the time that it does take. Um, so that's one thing that everybody within their facility needs to look at. Where do we build in this time? Who are our resources? Who can we use, whether internally or externally, you know, for a consult? But just know that there are resources out there to help. They're all required by regulation and accreditation, but it should be more than just for that. Again, it's embracing it to improve the quality of care we give our patients.
1: I think when I get, a, I get a new client or when I'm working with a client that is just new into the ASC space and trying to understand quality improvement, and especially when I'm talking to nurses who are somewhat new to the process, I emphasize to them that you as a nurse, uh, do quality improvement every day. And you know, you're know you used to, as a nurse, not getting credit for what you're doing. You find a problem, you fix the problem, and you move on. Quality improvement is sometimes quite simply that, uh, identifying what it is that you fixed, putting it down on paper, making sure that you broadcast it to everybody possible so that they understand um, uh, and learn from that experience. We we have to learn from our past experiences. We don't want to hide it. And that's why it's so important that it not be a punitive process, that we learn from those things that didn't quite work right. So do you have you know some advice as to how to encourage, especially, and when I say younger people, I'm not necessarily meaning always young people, uh, but people that are new to the industry or are coming over from a hospital environment, uh, how they might uh, learn to embrace quality and, and become advocates instead of just thinking this is something I have to do in order to get the paperwork in line. Yeah, and
7: those are great points and a great question. Um, I think like any other job that each of us do, any other tasks that um, nurses learn in nursing school and, you know, going into practice as new nurses, switching to different specialties, learning new things. I think quality is the same thing. It comes down to learning about it. Learning Learning is knowledge and knowledge is power. And once one understands what the quality improvement process is, that's whole cycle, and there's you know, there's resources out there, but once you understand what that process is, it's easier to now to try to assimilate it into the mechanisms, the reporting, the documentation that's required. But you're absolutely right. As nurses, as healthcare providers, and no matter what job anybody is in, we do this every day and we all go out with the intent of improving what we do and that's quality. Long ago when I first established my business, um I adopted the process from AAAHC. And I don't mean to be, you know, promoting one agency over another, but their 10 step, their 10 element process is the one that really clearly defines, makes sense, and we really have to learn it, understand it, and it's adapted by every accreditation agency and regulatory surveyors. Um, So I think that's probably a start whether an agency is accredited by joint commission, um, Quad A, uh, AAA, no matter who it is, it's still the same process. And the other part is I think it's incumbent upon administration, the governing board, to also embrace it and send out culture, that message to everybody in the facility that, again, it's not punitive. This is educational. It relates to patient care. And this is why we ought to embrace it and work together as a team.
1: Okay. So what I thought I would do – now, is open up uh, t- to all the panelists. Anybody that wants to uh, chime in. We we've had a difficult year. This has been a, a challenging year. I mean, we. We say that all the time, but but it has also been an opportunity to learn a lot, I think, uh, be it uh, how to make sure that we follow the regulations, how do we pivot uh, with regard to the types of services that we're offering, how we revise uh, our quality improvement programs in order to adapt to the new reality that we have, how we uh, interface with, uh, you know, hospital systems, joint ventures. Um, we're, we're finding, uh, you know, development has suddenly begun again and that there's a lot of opportunity out there, you know, for a new, uh, new surgery centers or expansions. So I just want to put the question out there or uh, the question out to everybody here. Uh, you know, what, what is uh, something that you've learned in this last year that you think, uh, has been an important part of your development and, and your, your organization's development?
4: I can start that, uh, John. Sure, Manny. I think, um, you know, our ASC staff leadership have really learned what they you know, how far they could go during this pandemic. I think the easiest thing for everyone to do at the beginning was shut the doors, you know, and then we'll just come out from our, our hole when this is all over. Yeah. But in fact, um, what our experience has shown is, you know, being thinking forward, being a part of the solution and trying to, to understand what our role was during this pandemic We gained a lot of strength out of that. And I think our ASCs all realized, you know, that they're an essential part of the healthcare system and they can provide essential care under the most trying circumstances. And staff, you know, it's been said over and over that you can't take a a hospital staff member and move them into the ASC. But I think what we learned, interestingly enough, is our ASC staff are so competent that they can pivot on a dime and really become infection you know, infection control and infectious disease experts in moments and be able to provide, you know, the highest quality of care to very susceptible patients and do it in just such a phenomenal fashion. I think we, we really showed what role we play in the healthcare system and how far we, we've come and how far we can go.
6: I'd like to add um, a little bit outside of the ASC, uh, I agree with Monty 100%, not number one, but also the the importance and relevance of our state and national associations. We always look to them to help us, you know, with regulatory issues and, you know, with, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, fighting uh, those that we we think, you know, are against us for, you know, imposing higher degrees of uh, hurdles or or regulations. But in New Jersey, a plug for the ASC association, you know, we, Number one, found that our relationship with the Department of Health really helped uh, give guidance not only to our, our our member centers, but to all ASCs in the state. You know, our, our mission, which is to promote outpatient surgery in the state, you know, transcends membership. We helped craft some of the uh, regulations with the department. They looked at us as the subject matter experts, and we're continuing to, to do so. Uh, you know, daily we help member centers and, and uh, uh, you know, with questions about interpretation of, the, of those regulations. We work with ASCA as well uh, in, in guidance on, you know, determining uh, whether it's guidelines for elective surgery, which we help disseminate from the uh, ASA and American College Surgeons. You know, all, all of these resources became vital. I, I can't stress that word enough. vital for us to maintain operations during this time.
5: And to add, um, I think it was really important to learn this year how important it was to make sure we surround ourselves with a good team and really lean on our colleagues. I think this topic in particular, it was um, evident that it is impossible for one person to know or keep up with all the everything and changes. and you know, just having that person or or a team of people that you can reach out to and get that information was so important just to either validate what you were thinking or bring new information to you and just make sure that everybody stays as current as they can. And that common goal of keeping our patients and our staff as safe as we
7: possibly can. I think it's been an incredible year. Um, All of us in healthcare, we know how much we have to be adaptable and flexible and think outside of the box, which Corey said so well earlier. I think this has been an even more credible year for people to adapt, become flexible, find workarounds that enable them to continue to practice, making it safe for themselves, making it safe for patients. And it's been quite a challenging year for for me personally. um, The majority of my work that I do with my client is some on-site work, but predominantly over, um, you know, the internet. So the technology, of course, is is a tremendous boom. I wouldn't be able to do what I do. But to have thought that one day we'd be having our annual conferences and and meetings and doing things like we are now and seeing how quickly the, uh, the New Jersey State Association um, rallied and assembled to get everything online and bring everybody together so that we all weren't, you know, going out there on our own. I think it was less, sorry, more than incredible. Um, and, and again, it shows up what we can do to keep moving.
3: And uh,
1: John, did you have any last minute thoughts there?
3: Just real quickly, I, I, uh, John, just, if you're in the uh, for the last years, providing medication safety guidance. And the nurses and clinical staff in these facilities are so wonderful. I have a saying, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And nurses and doctors, all of them, they'll reach out to me for guidance and, and, and my expertise. And I think it's a great team that we build in our ASCs, inc- incorporating all of our specialties for the best, betterment of the patient.
1: I want to thank all of the uh, the panelists here. This has been a great opportunity. I wish I was uh, together with you in person, so uh, uh, we'd have more time to talk. Uh, but uh, thank you for your time and, uh, and, again, your support of the New Jersey Association.
7: Thank you,
1: John. Hopefully next year. Hopefully
7: next
5: year. <laughs> thank
1: you. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks very much.
5: Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye, everyone. Care.
0: In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com.
1: And I do really want to emphasize how important it is for people to try to get us this mm-hmm. information. We... Uh, as we've become busier on this podcast, as we've had more and more uh, challenges in getting the information out there, it's, we have less and less time, really, to to look for these mm-hmm. things. So uh, it's not that we're ignoring you. If uh, if you make a big deal about it on your websites, we just can't go to 50 websites to mm-hmm. uh, find out what's <laughs> happening. So,
0: So the Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference and exhibits is June 24th and 25th, 2021, at J.W. Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Center's annual conference and trade show is July 14th through the 16th, 2021, at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando.
0: AORN's Expo 2021 is August 7th through the 10th at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida.
1: Our friends at the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting is September 8th through the 10th at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California. We hopefully will be there. We Mm -hmm. love Huntington Beach. Mm -hmm.
0: The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting on September 22nd is at the Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois.
1: And as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be the keynote speaker at the Ohio ASC Association Conference, which is going to be at the Hilton Columbus Boleras on September 27th and 28th. Uh, this is a two day event featuring an exhibit hall and two full days of education. So, for more information, go to their website. The New York State uh, Ambulatory Surgery Center Association live and in person Roaring Twenties Conference will be held at Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Tarrytown, New York. For, for more information, visit nysaasc.org. That's September 29th and 30th. And there's a little bit of Roaring Twenty music there mm-hmm. soon. <laughs>
0: The Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 4th and 5th. At the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington.
1: And I did want to point out that if anybody else has, like, music that they want to have with their their thing, just, <laughs> just tell me about it. I, I just love this new board here. <laughs> the Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November eighth, twenty 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Aren't you uh, heading out there, Sue? Once you heard that they were going to have uh, Hershey chocolate. <laughs> 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 well, that's it for this Uh, edition of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by our incredible team, Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kaleraitis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
0: We would like to thank our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about their services, please visit ah strategies.com. Email them at info at ah strategies.com or call John Gailey directly at 585 594 1167. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards. Then an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please email us at comments at